0: Hi, Year of Polygamy listeners. This is your host, Lindsay Hanson-Park. If you like listening to the podcast and find it valuable, consider giving a donation. You can donate at yearpolygamy.com. All donations are tax deductible under the Fern Foundation, and donors get special benefits like invites to special events and secret episodes that other people don't have access to. So consider giving a donation and supporting this project today. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm interviewing someone that many of you have asked for. Uh, she is someone who has probably one of the most interesting stories you'll ever hear, and she comes from a very interesting, very unique family. Uh, Anna LeBaron, can you say hello? Hi, Lindsay.
1: And, my, and just so moving forward, we know, and because we're probably going to be friends after this long chat, my name is pronounced Anna. That is good to know.
0: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I hope that I don't get it wrong. But if I do, you can call me Linda or something oh. <laughs> to, to even it up. Okay, so Anna LeBaron. Anna LeBaron has the famous LeBaron last name. Any fan of the podcast is going to know that last name. The LeBarons, the famous four o'clock murders. We've, we've talked about this story. And I would just advise anyone, if you have not listen to our podcast episode that we did on this subject. The history is really important and Anna is going to talk a lot about that too. But go back, I'll link it on this episode at com, And we are going to talk about the history of the LeBaron family. It's it's fascinating. We talk about the genesis of the group, how they break off, how they form, and where they are now. So it's a real delight to have Anna come on the podcast. Anna, do you think you can just give us a little bit of background about who you are and where you come from.
1: Anna LeBaron. My father was Herbal LeBaron and my mother was Anna Mae, his fourth wife. I was born in Chihuahua, Mexico in 1968. And my I was born right before the Herbalites, as they became known in that colony down there, um, right before the Herbalites left the colony. So, I left, my mother says we left there when I was nine months old. And then I, I had never been back until 2008 when I went back, um, uh, with some of my siblings and, um, and visited. So I have, um, I lived and was raised in the, um, the Liberan group. I don't know what you call them.
0: <laughs> um, well, there's several Liberan groups right now, at least. So, uh, or I guess family breakups. Do you want to talk about? Let's talk about your group specifically. Well, it was Herbal Barons' group, the Church of the Lamb of God, I think,
1: and I was raised in that. And I managed to escape when I was thirteen years old, and um, right. It was right after my father passed away in prison in 1981. So I ran away from home. I think it was 1982 and um, went to go live with my sister. So they took me in and kind of finished raising me and I lived with them until 1989. So I lived through the events that occurred on June 28th, 1980, June 27th, 1988. And so I was part of their family when that happened.
0: And now you've written a book about this, which we're going to link, but why don't you give us a title at the beginning so okay. people can put it in their Amazon cards.
1: Oh, yes. My book is called The Polygamist's Daughter, and it's my memoir of having those experiences growing up and then the aftermath of what happened with the 4 o'clock murders and how those things affected me into my adulthood and then the healing journey that I've been on since 1995, you know, so several decades now of going through professional counseling and the, you know, all the kinds of helps that you can get. I have been um, processing through all the pain and the trauma and abuses that happened.
0: Yeah, I imagine. And, and so. Everyone out there can support you by buying this book, and and we've linked to some interviews that you've done. And let's just, let's give a sort of background, a refresher for people about the Liberian family. As you mentioned, um, you're in the Mexican colonies, and when we talk about this, you're actually, the majority of your group are um, white Mormons living in the Mexican colonies, correct? Correct. My father did have several wives
1: that were from Mexico. And so there's several of those. And then there were some white wives as well. Um, and my mother was one of those. So, so we
0: we talked about this in the podcast. So so the All Red group was another group that was down there. And they had some contact with your family. And as Mormon fundamentalism gets organized, the LeBaron sort of come out of this this movement of fundamentalism, and they settle in the colonies. And the LeBaron brothers, um, kind of have their own sort of spin on the doctrine. And one of the brothers is Joel, who would be your uncle, correct? That is correct. And he had a church, uh, the Church of the First Born of the Fullness of Times, and um, that group was going around for a while, right? Several several decades.
1: I don't know the time frame that it was in existence, but it was for quite a while. And Joel and my father, Erbil, were um, co-leaders, I guess. Joel was considered the prophet. And my father was, you know, answered to him. And then, as everybody knows, they had a falling out eventually. And then my father did have Joel killed in an attempt to kind of take over. The rest of the group, which didn't happen because Joel was beloved by his family and his followers.
0: Yeah. So so let's talk about that. And and I seem to recall um, it's been a while since I've done the research on this. But they had a sister too. And do you remember your aunt? She was said to have they locked her kind of almost in a cage, and she had some um, mental illness that was that went untreated. It sound like
1: it. It seems like that was
0: my dad's sister.
1: If I remember correctly, Uh that I don't know. I don't remember her name and I didn't have a lot of contact because we left. So I didn't have a lot of contact with my with anyone outside of my father's wives and children and family.
0: Okay, well, let's let's back up and talk about your mother. What can you tell us about your mom? Where did she come from? How does she end up, you know, marrying Herbal LeBaron? Well, I, I, I kind of give that really brief history in
1: the in the book at the very beginning, so that people have that context. But in in just in summary, she um, she was born and raised LDS and uh, converted um, to fundamentalism uh, once she heard my father teaching uh, what he was what him and Joel were teaching about.
0: Was she born in Utah or was she born in Mexico? I believe she is from Arizona. Arizona. So she goes down to the colonies to settle with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Herbal and Joel, both, a lot of them were really concerned with this idea, the one mighty and strong. Do you want to talk about that really quick? Because of course it's in LDS canon, it's in Mormon canon. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about the one mighty and strong? Yeah, I, I, I personally left when I was 13, so I am not
1: really um well versed in as far as the doctrine and the theology and chapter and verse what i understand about it is that there was going to be one mighty and strong that would come to the earth and kind of reform and you know be the one that was the prophet i guess
0: yeah and, yeah so oh, joseph but, smith has this 1832 prophecy that comes it's sort of out of isaiah when he's retranslating isaiah so go on. Okay. So what I understand is that my,
1: my grandfather, um, held that. He was the one. And then he passed that mantle onto Joel. And then there was a scuffle between Joel and Irvell because Irvell wanted it. And he was, um, he's power hungry, I guess. And so he kind of took that title onto himself and self proclaimed himself the
0: one mighty and strong. Is that? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that that, that sounds right. And we're actually going to do an entire episode on this doctrine because it does show up in fundamentalism everywhere. And I believe it wasn't even canonized in the doctrine covenant until 1876. But it's, it's so interesting because this becomes the theme of the LeBaron group, the one mighty and strong, someone who's supposed to sort of bring everything together, save, save the earth from uh, being destroyed. And this is really the, the family language and environment you grew up in. So do you remember anything about your grandfather?
1: No, I didn't. I was not, I, we left the colony when I was nine months old. And so the only contact I had with grandparents was one time my mother's mother. So my maternal grandmother sent a birthday card with a dollar in it. And my older brother, Heber, took me to the store and helped me spend it. And we came home with some little cars. So,
0: <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested. Five. <laughs> I mean, in my view of of the LeBarons, where they stayed in Mexico for a long time, but clearly you left when you were young. So let's start there. So you're nine months old. You're born into the colony. I assume, I mean, everything that I read, we also interviewed Irene Spencer, who was married to Joel, and she talks about um, just living like poppers, so poor, no electricity, no running water. And so I imagine you were born under similar circumstances. Yes. The, I
1: went, when I went back in 2008, I was able to see the house that I was born in, and it was very tiny, and my mother had a lot of children. I was number 10. So oh, wow. I was born at home, like most births down there during that time period were home births, so... We did leave when I was nine months old and moved to the Baja Peninsula. And there's, there's a lot of discussion between my siblings, especially the older ones that have memories about it, about who did what and where and who stayed where because we moved around quite a bit.
0: So why did you move?
1: What was the purpose of the move? Well, the, the, the differences between Joel and Irva were becoming more and more evident. And then, I guess Errol decided to move his family out of the colony and they wanted to colonize the Baja Peninsula where he had um, uh, imaginings about um, creating, buying some land there. I know there's a lot of history about some, a piece of land and he was going to build property and a resort or something on it. And so like I said, i I've read the books about my father, the ones that have been written, and it seems like all of them have a l- minor variations in the history. So that's where we where I grew up, and my earliest memories are down in the Baja area in on the peninsula, and then into moving into the United States, into San Diego and um, moving all over California for a bit before we ended up in Dallas starts. Chapter one of my book starts in Dallas.
0: Okay, so um, if you want to start there, just so memory serves, that's fine too. But it set us up for this. Is this your mom and just your siblings moving, or were other sister wives moving around, or who who was part of the family that was moving? We There were always um, different configurations of sister
1: wives and children living under the same roof.
0: And your dad After- had...
1: Over thirteen at least, right? He had thirteen wives. Okay. And he fathered eventually fifty children. That and it depends on who's counting and what they're count who they're counting. Sure.
0: Yeah. No, number. I understand polygamous okay. math is complicated. I get it. Thank you, polygamous math, that's a new term for me. I'm gonna
1: use it. May I? Yeah, please. Please do. So um so each family um that lived under a roof would change very quickly and it was a very fluid situation and sometimes, especially right after 1972, after Joel was killed, um, our families moved around a lot because now they were wanted by the law. Um, in Mexico because of what happened in Los Molinos and, and in you the wanna, U.S. And
0: tell us what that was. Tell us what, what happened, happened in Los Molinos.
1: Um, based on what I've read, um, Ervil sent his followers into the town, and um, they they raided the town and, and shot and killed people and lit homes on fire.
0: So this is what is so interesting about your story. By the time that you're brought into this family, Ervil has really radicalized the group. Now, if you know the history, this it, it was, by most accounts, a very poor but somewhat peaceful group. Uh, the brothers were a little eccentric at times, but okay. they were struggling in Mexico. And by the time you're born into the family, Irvel has taken, tried to take over his father's or his brother's group, and okay. radicalized it. And he beca- hes called the Mormon Manson. It gets very cult-like. He uh, is having them do violent raids and talking about using very violent blood atonement language. And this is what you're born into, right? Right. This was all beginning when I was born in 1968.
1: And then when I was three years old is when Joel died. And that's when they began to live life on the run. And so we began moving around quite a bit more even. And so the members of the group would travel at night and come and go from homes at night. So when you went to bed at night, you didn't know the next morning who was going to still be in the home. Or who would have left in the middle of the night? And then sometimes we moved ourselves in the middle of the night. And so we would be woken up and put into a car and leave everything behind and go somewhere else.
0: And this is just like your normal, right? This is what you as a kid, you don't know any better. Tell us about some of your early memories as, as a young child. As a very young child, I have memories we weren't allowed to play
1: outside because that would give us our position away to the authorities. So we played a lot of indoor games and I got really good at cards and I could play speed and beat just about anybody. I got really good at monopoly. We could play in the backyard if we were quiet and there was a fence, you know, Um, but we, we spent a lot of time indoors. We didn't have a TV and obviously no video games or anything like that. So, generally, you know, it was just whatever kind of game thing we could make up and play, and then we would fight, of course. And so, my mother, you asked our family arrangement. My mother usually shared a home with two or more of her sister wives. And in addition to those children and those wives, um, one of my father's wives ended up going to jail. And so, my mother took in her younger children and finished raising them. And then one of my dad's wives died of cancer. And so she also took in those younger children and finished raising them.
0: So how many children are we talking? In a home at any given
1: time, anywhere from 10, 15, 20 kids, plus the adults in a little three-bedroom house.
0: Yeah, that's that's intense.
1: And so like at night when it was time to go to bed, we didn't all have our, our own room, obviously, but what we did have was a stack of blankets in the living room. Everybody would just go pick their blanket and find a place on the living room floor and, and curl up next to whoever siblings you were friendly with that day and, you know, <laughs> wanted to sleep by. And then that's where we slept.
0: So did you it, grow up knowing all of your siblings and forming a relationship with them and being close with them?
1: Um, I did know a lot of them, but not all of them. Two of them I just met in 2008 when I went to the colony for the first time since I was nine months old. So two of them, and then two of them I've never met, but I'm in touch with almost all of them today through the amazing thing we call the Facebook.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the real one mighty and strong bringing everyone yeah. together.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, So So we are we were we did grow up close with the siblings that we hang around a lot with, um, just because they were our only friends. We were not allowed to make friends with anyone outside of the cult. And we would be put in public school, but we weren't allowed to make friends in school. If we made a friend at school, they had to be an at school friend. We weren't allowed to invite them to our home. And we of course were not allowed to go to their home after school. So we were very isolated. And then as soon as you were old enough to be put to work, generally speaking, you were taken out of school and you had to work in the family appliance business.
0: Okay, let's get back to that. But I want to talk about family worship. So what was family worship like? Did you guys do family prayer? Did you go to a church? Did you have church at your house? How
1: was that done? It was always in, from from the time I remember it, done in home churches. So we would just meet at whoever's home in their living room and chairs would be brought in. And so the kids would be, you know, shuffled off to a back bedroom or the basement or, you know, the backyard or whatever. And an older sibling or an older teenage, you know, 13, 14 year old would be put in charge of, you know, 30, 40 kids or whatever it was. Um, maybe not 30 or 40 at a time, but it seemed like a lot. Right. So I was usually one of the younger ones being babysat by older teenagers. Um, so that's what it felt like. You know, we would sing regular Mormon hymns out of the Mormon hymnal. And we were taught to pray, you know, Dear Heavenly Father and just the prayers, the normal prayers of everybody. Um, when my dad went to prison, we would, so I'm fast forwarding a little bit. We would gather around every night and pray for his release from
0: prison. Did you grow up as a as a daughter of faith, a girl with a lot of faith?
1: I, I don't, like we were taught in Sunday school, quote unquote, when there was Sunday school for the children, you know, we would be taught about Joseph Smith and, you know, the story of him in the garden and, you know, and we would be taught the Ten Commandments, which seems really ironic considering all the killing that was going on in our family. <laughs> And, um, you know, there's that one that says thou shalt not kill. And it seemed to um, not apply to my father and, you know, whatever he had going on.
0: Now, did you as a child, did you know that he was uh, engaged in sort of these violent raids and eventually the murders? No, I was not aware of anything,
1: which is why the cover of my book shows the censor bars on my eyes and the censor bars on my mouth. Oh, okay. because. There were a lot of things I didn't see, and I didn't know anyone had actually died until I was in my teens and had already gotten out. And I came across that book that was written about my dad called The
0: uh, Blood Prophet of Blood. You're kidding. You went to all that. You were a teenager till you knew. That's so interesting. Okay, so um, let's talk about as you get a little bit older, are you still in Dallas at this point as you become 8, 9, and 10? where are you at? I I was 7 and 8 in
1: Dallas so we weren't we were there very briefly and then we were moved from Dallas to Denver in the back of a box truck like a moving truck just dark and yucky and smelly in the back of a truck a bunch of us um that's how we made the trek from Dallas to Denver
0: and did you have an idea at this point that your family was special or different We were taught that we were celestial
1: children. However, that didn't get us any type of special treatment. We lived in abject poverty. My mother was on welfare, but because she can only claim so many children, there really wasn't ever enough food to go around. And so we did, um, we called it gardening, but it was really dumpster diving in the backs of grocery stores. And you called it gardening? We called it gardening because you could get fruits and vegetables oh, that see. were carted that were bruised or not able to be sold in the store. So we called it gardening as a euphemism for that activity. Okay. And we would um, we would rummage through the Goodwill boxes and I would be put inside a Goodwill box and I would hand out the bags of donated uh, clothing and other items and then we would take those home and sort through them and try to fit people with the clothing that we found in the bags.
0: And how did you feel about that at the time? Was it just normal or did you resent it or?
1: It felt normal. This is just what we did. Okay. It it was, we didn't have like a, we weren't, um, we weren't raised in compounds, kept very isolated in our minds. Like by not being able to make friends, by not having television, except brief moments of it here and there. We didn't know, I didn't know anything was wrong or that anything should or could be different.
0: Talk to me about education, the education you received. Well, when we were,
1: anytime we were living in the United States, we were enrolled in public school and the small children were always enrolled in public school because it's basically free childcare.
0: And so, and so then you would get maybe block. a full rounded meal when you went to public school. Not always.
1: There were a few times where, you know, we qualified for the free lunches and that would be our meal, our, you know, the one kind of really great meal that we would have even for, you know, most kids school lunches are like, oh, yuck. And for us, it was like a treat and we looked forward to it and the whole milk because you know we drank a lot of powdered milk and my mom would water it down some to make it stretch further and so it was always just yuck and so when we got whole milk at the school that was just such a treat and the one time I got in trouble at school was you weren't allowed to trade food but this girl was not going to drink her little carton of milk and I couldn't stand to see it go to waste (laughs) So I switched cartons and the teacher saw and I got put at the other table where the troublemakers sat.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> and oh, I was a very so compliant
1: sad. child. So that was mortifying to me to be in the table where the troublemakers sit.
0: You were just hungry and careful. I was just hungry and could not stand the thought of that
1: milk going in the trash can.
0: Oh, wow. That's a story. Um did you, were you treated differently at those public schools? It sounds like you moved around a lot, so you never quite got to establish roots. That's very accurate.
1: We moved around very, very often, and so the teachers really didn't have a lot of time to kind of figure out what's going on with all these kids that are all enrolled and this close to the same age and, you know, whatever, you know. So, um, there were a few places where we would stay a little bit longer than others. And I have really fond memories of some of my teachers during those times. Um, I was a very, um, studious child. So that, you know, I could, I loved being at school because it was such a respite from the activities of the home. And I felt very accepted and, and cared for by the teachers just because that was their job was to care for us. <laughs> And so having that structure and having an environment that was colorful and and prepared for learning, it, it was just so different from what we had at home because at home we didn't have regular furniture and, you know, it was just basically hodgepodge whatever anybody could find, you know, at a thrift store that was given away or, you know, found on the side of the road, you know, it was very, very um, um, poor. And, you know, poverty stricken is, you know, the best way I can describe it.
0: Did you have happy memories? Did you enjoy your siblings or did you have a good relationship with your mother? Yes, I loved my mother and had, you know, she wouldn't tell us when she would, she came and went a
1: lot and she would be gone for days or sometimes weeks and sometimes even longer. And we wouldn't be told what was happening. She would just be gone and then, and then days, weeks or whatever, she would, show up again and so it was always a happy time to see her and the the opening chapter of the book um, shows me on the driveway begging and crying and begging my mom not to go because this was one of the few the first times that I actually found out that she was leaving before she left and so but usually it was she would come and go without telling us and so the being reunited with her was always a happy time. I drew a lot of security and uh, comfort from her presence in the midst of all that chaos and rootlessness. And so having her present was always uh, like a big relief. Um, and then there were extended periods of time where she would just be gone and I wouldn't know and we weren't allowed to ask questions. So we couldn't say, hey, when's my mom coming back? And we just did what we were told.
0: So who took care of you? Other sister wives or siblings?
1: Other sister wives, other members of the group, uh younger, I mean, older siblings that were barely 13. I mean, my sister Kathleen was taking care of eight or nine, 10 kids at one point. And I'm one of the younger ones. And she's weeks at a time. She's 13 or 14, taking care of so many kids with just some... Food stamps and told to, you know, parse it out carefully and, you know, being in charge of all these kids without another adult present. And there were some scary things that happened during those times that, um, that were just frightening. And, you know, one, you have a sick child and then you have a teenager and, you have codes for when the phone rings, what you can and can't do, and you know. Um, but, but my memories during those times, even though it was, there was a lot of fear that was palpable and real, and you just didn't know why people were scared all the time, but the fear that was very evident and very palpable was nonstop. But when the, all the adults would be gone and it would just be the kids, You know, we could play and find things to do. You know, one of the extended absences that my mom had, we would entertain ourselves by cutting out coupons out of magazines because they used to be in magazines before they would, nowadays they put them in the inserts in the newspapers, but they used to be in magazines. We would cut out coupons and that would be our quote money and we would play house and we would have a restaurant and we just invented this little game where we were, we made our own currency with coupons. And, you know, my sister would cook food and we had to pay her to eat with our money. <laughs> and, you know, we had these little baby dolls and broken dolls that we would find in the Goodwill box or whatever that had been donated. And so just, we would invent games and invent ways to entertain ourselves and just make the best of. Some really, really difficult circumstances.
0: So you talked about your mom being gone a lot, and then she's gone for a good. Talk to us. Where was? Did you ever find out where your mom was going when she would disappear? She was going on trips, either to
1: go visit my father wherever he was, or to go do typing for him, or go do because he, my father, created wrote a lot, and he needed his wives to type up his the literature and the pamphlets that he kind of wrote incessantly and distributed. So I I remember with my mom stuffing envelopes and labeling them and you know mailing things out, just v- vague recollections of this as a small child. And then she would go off for days. And I'm sure they were distributing them or she was taking them to the people that were going to distribute them. And you know, those You know, we were all kind of spread out between uh, California, Dallas, and Denver. And so, you know, she was making these long treks to bring and go and take and, you know, move people back and forth. And so life was just pretty chaotic and very, a lot of upheaval. Um, all the time.
0: Do you know anything about your mother's relationship with your father? Was she in love with him? Did she did she like him? Did she get along with her other sister wives? My mother adored Errol. She
1: loved him. She was in love with him. And she did her best to get along with the sister wives. And some of them she got along with better than others. You know, a few of them clashed more than others. But my mom was pretty... Happy go lucky, you know. From what I remember, and she easily laughed and and tried to get along with people, and and she was very compliant as well, which is why some of the horrible things that happened to us were allowed. She she wouldn't um, react or respond, and she allowed things to happen, like just leaving her children for weeks at a time. In the care of a young teenage girl, you know, she, she acquiesced to that and, and allowed it to happen. So, you know, one of the things that my mom did that, um, when I was the youngest, whichever child was the youngest, she would always take that child with her whenever she would go. And so when I was the youngest, I remember, you know, a memory, I have memories of being with her by myself in the car and traveling long distances and, you know, sleeping in the car and that kind of activity. Um, but then, you know, I had a younger brother come along. And so I was kind of ousted out of that favorable treatment position. And then her youngest daughter was born. And so he was ousted too. And, and she became the baby that got to go everywhere with my mom. So my mom
0: loved her babies
1: and, you know, was very attached to her babies. But as soon as another one came along, it was kind of like you were pushed out of the nest and older siblings would now take care of you. And so I have very, very maternal attachments to uh, one of my older siblings, my oldest half sister, Ramona, because I remember just her playing with me a lot, which means she was taking care of me and babysitting me and we would play cards a lot and she would let me win at go fish and war, you know? So, you know, those are just early memories that I have growing up. And, and so it it wasn't always all horrible because I wasn't aware that I needed to be afraid, but the fear was palpable and you could sense it from an early age.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Let's talk about that then. When so you leave by thirteen. So what happens between the ages of nine to thirteen where things start to change?
1: We moved from from Dallas to Denver, and we lived there. Um, we moved in Denver a, a quite a bit. You know, several different homes during the period that we lived in Denver. Um, so we moved quite a bit, and then during that time we were sent to Mexico. My mom drove us to Mexico and leaves us with complete strangers that were new converts to my father's church and, and then leaves us. She's gone. So we get kind of divvied out between two different families that are living in two different cities nearby each other in Mexico.
0: And are you told why?
1: No, No, we were never explained and we weren't allowed to ask questions.
0: What would happen if you did ask questions?
1: We were told not to ask questions. <laughs> like, this is none of your business and don't ask questions.
0: We'll get back to what happened here. But you, you talked about in your book, you mentioned that you grew up. It was kind of you were punished quite severely if you acted out. Is that true? Yes. Now, I I was punished
1: occasionally. But I was a very compliant child and knew instinctively not to cause waves or rock the boat and to not talk back because I didn't want to be punished because you would be if you, if you did. And, but I observed and watched other siblings who had a little more fire in their belly, um, get beaten for non-compliance or for back talking or complaining or complaining to the wrong person about anything. Um, so you, you figured it out really quick not to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing if you didn't want to get a beating. And pretty much anybody that was older than you could beat you. I mean, and, I mean, there was just so little supervision, um, for the kids. And we were always left in charge, you know, with other teenagers and they were just mean sometimes. So I just learned to stay quiet and keep out of the way and not cause trouble.
0: And one thing I said we we're going to get back to that I haven't yet about the family business. Do you want to talk about that really quick? Yeah.
1: Our our whole family um, had an appliance, a used appliance business. And so the whole family worked in it. Um, some worked more than others. And... Some wives would get favor, more favorable treatment than others, and their children would get more favorable treatment than others. And that's common in polygamous families for, like, the first wife or whichever wife is in favor with the husband, for her and her children to get more and better. Um, and that's a reality that we lived with, um, not just with my father, his wives, and children, but the other members of the group that had polygamous wives and children. Um, you know, when we lived in Denver, for instance, um, Dan Jordan was the one kind of overseeing everything while my father was in prison. And so his family did not have to work nearly as hard as Herbal's children, wives and children. Except there were some of his wives that weren't the favorites, so they had to work and their children had to work too. So it was, you know, equal opportunity enslavement basically because we worked and we weren't paid and we it was you know child labor laws are violated every which direction and that's also common in a lot of polygamous families
0: (laughs) so yeah it definitely is it's it's actually a huge problem in a lot of families um talk to us about your relationship with your father well i i
1: i described the two times that I was actually in the same room with him. I describe that in the book because it uh, doesn't take a long time to talk about the two times I recall being with him and or in his presence and the experiences that happened as a result of that. And you know, those two experiences, when they're all you have, you know, you kind of shape them and form them into good experiences. But when you look back as an adult and you see what was actually happening, um, you're like, oh, those were like not awesome. They could have been so much better.
0: <laughs> so you're going to be doing an interview with John Delen on Mormon Stories, and we don't want to give away everything for the book. So we'll let readers buy the book so they can hear more about that. Talk to us now. Let's get back to why you left.
1: Okay. Well... When we lived in Denver, our, the conditions that we lived in were so horrific, um, and things were happening that were just, oh, there was so much injustice going on um, between the families and the people that were there, and and my father's children were getting the brunt of most of the injustices, because he wasn't around to protect us, he wasn't... I mean he was never around to protect us but when he was out of prison he had more control over the people. He was guiding and directing people from prison make no bones about that. But he didn't have as much control. And not very many people especially the adults were really interested in the welfare of the children. So what we experienced Why why was, do you
0: think they weren't?
1: They were busy I mean they were a lot of them were wanted by the law. So they were all really you know, and en- engrossed with their own welfare and making sure they didn't get caught or um, or trying to make sure that the people they cared about didn't get caught because <laughs> most of the adults were very aware of what was happening, and you know the law and what I mean our homes would get raided by the FBI if we were in the United States or by the Mexican police if we were in Mexico, and I experienced both. And so, you know, there was so much um fear. They the, the adults didn't have time to for the wherewithal or the emotional energy necessary to care for and properly nurture and grow small children into adulthood. It just wasn't there.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine the dynamics because in my mind I still picture this group as this sort of Manson-like cult group, right? Where you're moving You're you're moving from house to house and you're really struggling to get food and clothing and and you know the difference between I guess this cult and like a hippie cult is <laughs> your polygamy, you have lots and lots of children and that's something that really I think makes your experience unique but also a bit tragic, I think. Oh,
1: it was very tragic. And um the adults were were doing their best and and trying their best but under the circumstances it was very difficult to try to create any kind of uh, sense of security or sense of stability and some tried better than others and certain you know family groups within the cult had more options and more resources available to them but we did not and especially when we lived in Denver We were the brunt of everything and, you know, received the worst treatment of all of the people that were involved at that point. And so, you know, you asked why I finally escaped. Well, when my dad was in prison, my older brother, Ed, who had been living and working in Houston with Mark and Duane and and company, and they had a thriving appliance business. In Houston. And so Ed went and moved my mom and her children to Houston, and we started working for Mark and Lillian. They were kind of, you know, in charge of that branch of the church, I guess.
0: So, and explain to people who Mark and Lillian are.
1: Um, Lillian is my half sister, and Mark is her husband. And they had a monogamous marriage at the time. And that's and it stayed that way, um, although they were both under a lot of pressure to um, make it into a polygamist marriage, but they never acquiesced to that. So they were able to stay monogamous. Um, they lived in Houston and had a thriving appliance business. My mom and all her children came down. And Mark at that time was really wanting to kind of change the trajectory of uh, you know, how they were going about their lives. And he was trying to stay on the straight and narrow and, you know, build an actual business that was good and have a home and stability for his family and his children. And, and then they, they, um, they took on my mother, uh, Rosemary, her children. So two of my dad's wives plus all their children, plus all the other children that came along with my mother. And so that life in Houston became the, the best life that I had ever experienced. It was still odd if you were looking at it from the outside in, but it was the most stable. And my mother was actually paid for her work. Wow. She had a, a home that she sold used appliances out of, and she was allowed to keep some of those funds which meant she could grocery shop in the grocery store. And so I got my first taste of life that felt normal ever. And because my father was in prison, you know, and me here we are in Houston, and Mark and Lillian are doing their best um, to, to provide for and feed all of these families with their used appliance business, which they were the most successful Um, at running these businesses and and producing and, you know, making money at it. And so they had the best life and we got to experience some of that, you know, alongside of, but just in a different home with a lot more kids because it was just him and his wife and their children. And so we got to experience something that was good and they were... Really wanting to make people more moral. And so, you know, they were, there was a period of time where we were paid $5 a week for our work. And if you were, if you cussed and one of the adults heard you, your pay would be docked. So I didn't cuss because I wanted my whole $5 every week. $5 was like we were rich, basically. (laughs) And so, you know, week after week, I would save up my $5 because I didn't cuss. And, you know, I eventually saved up enough and bought myself a brand new pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans, which, you know, the little white swan stitched on the pocket was the thing at the time. Yeah. And, and then later, you know, I saved up my $5 again week after week and bought myself a pair of Nike tennis shoes with the two-tone brown, you know, swoosh on the side. And I was just High fashion, you know, and first time buying real clothes in a store, you know, just having all those experiences. And by then, I'm 12, 13 years old and, you know, becoming more aware of the world outside. And experiencing things like on Fridays after work, everybody would get their pay and then everybody would go roller skating every Friday. That was what we looked forward to. And that was such a different experience. To go out and, and be quote-unquote worldly by roller skating to worldly music, you know. Phil <laughs> Collins, to Air Tonight, you know, I remember, you know, the whole drum roll and everything from that song. Just because that was what we were experiencing for the very first time. And so life was fresh and new and from where I was sitting, it was wonderful. And then my father dies in prison. And that whole era of wonderfulness that we had been experiencing just kind of came crashing down. And um, my mother gets talked into moving back to Denver by Dan Jordan. And that it, it was at that point that I decided to run away. Because I was not having it with the whole Denver thing again. Living in poverty and slave labor and no pay and no roller skating for sure, you know. <laughs> um, so, I ran away from home at that point And Lillian took me in. And, and in essence, she finished raising me. And I worked alongside of her and Mark in their business. I, you know, was her kind of built-in babysitter. They had six children. And so I was 13 and able-bodied and a hard worker and I had a great work ethic and I did not want her to send me back to Denver. So I worked really hard and earned my keep and and then eventually, you know, I graduated from high school with them. It was frightening to run away and to separate myself from my mother and everything that I'd known growing up, but I was um, determined that I was not going to go back to Denver and to the really a hellhole and from what my siblings tell me that went back, things just went from bad to worse. What we had experienced the, the, the horrific things that we experienced in Denver that made me run away got even worse after the fact. But those are their stories to tell. So I wasn't there, and but I just know that it was horrible for them. Just just based on what they tell me.
0: I want. I'm interested in that. I want to talk about your life too, as you improve and sort of get out of this. But explain to us, to the best of your knowledge, how, what happens to the Barons after Ervil has gotten his group to commit the murders. As we know, he puts a hit out on. Everybody. Um yes. and, <laughs> Everybody. yeah, Spencer W. <laughs> Kimball, the LDS prophet, he was gonna take away anyone who threatened his authority and and his uh group ultimately leads to the murder of Rulin Allred, who is the leader of the AUB. So what happens just tell us what happens to the groups and the colonies and basically your family after this happens.
1: Well, there were so many people that were afraid of my father just because of the hits that he did order and the people that were ended up, he was eventually responsible for anywhere from 28 to 38 people that died. Including, and I I consider him responsible for some of the people that committed suicide as well, because, you know, just what he did created and shattered so many people's lives. Um, so I, I hold him accountable for that. But when he died in prison, um, Dan Jordan was trying to kind of collect everybody back up. And, and that's when my mom decided to move back to Denver along with the other wife of my father that had moved, that had already moved back, you know, that had moved to Houston with us. And so everybody up and moved back to Denver. And, you know, it was. You know, I don't know everything that happened in Denver. I didn't live there. And so my life became a little bit more normal living with Mark and Lillian and, and just that little nuclear family. And even though I was helping and working alongside of them in their business and everything, it was a nuclear family that felt more normal than anything I experienced growing up, having a mom and a dad, you know, in the home. And a a monogamous marriage, you know. Um, the other, um, families of my siblings, I lost track of. I lost track of almost all of my siblings during that period of time, just because some of them were in Denver. Some of them were in Phoenix. I didn't mention that because there was a Phoenix appliance business as well. And so some of them, you know, they were just kind of scattered around. Some of them were in Mexico. I think in Monterey, Mexico. And, you know, different factions of what Herbal left behind kind of rose up and, and there was a lot of infighting between them and a lot of people died just between them trying to figure out who was the next mighty, one mighty and strong, you know. So there's a lot of people in my family that have their own stories to tell about all of that, that is probably in some ways even more horrific than the story that I tell in my book. And so all of my siblings have their own story. And, you know, I don't, I wasn't there and I wasn't aware, but I just know there was a lot of factions and a lot of infighting between the factions that were left. And a lot of people died. And then you know, kind of things kind of settled down and calmed down. And, you know, for several years, it felt like, oh, huh, we could all breathe a sigh of relief. Um, at least that's how it felt, me living with Mark and Lillian. It felt like we could breathe a sigh of relief and, and live the types of the normal life that we were living at the time, or at least as normal as it ever was. And then that all changed when um, Dan Jordan was killed in 1987. And it was, you know, between the time I went to live with them and when Dan Jordan got killed is when I read that book, The Blood Covenant, no, The Prophet of Blood, and kind of became very aware of the atrocities that my father, my now dead father, was responsible for and the things that had happened and becoming aware of that at a, as a teenager, it was very eye-opening and sobering and frightening. And there was a period of time where it, it, it was very difficult to, to sleep without thinking about those things and processing that information and what do you do with that information And it wasn't like I was being put into counseling to kind of cope with these realizations that were happening. It was just within me, and and I had to process it on my own and figure out what I'm going to do with this information, which there wasn't a lot to do with it except to acknowledge that it was a reality. That was a difficult period of time.
0: No, no, that's good. That's really important. Tell us then, as you're... You're a teenager, which is just a hard time for ever everyone. Talk about talk about what happens with you legally, who you end up living with, and all of that.
1: I lived with Mark and Lillian from the time I was 13 and ran away from home and moved in with them. My mother did come to Houston um, after after very quick, soon after she had moved back to Denver. Uh, within a month or so, she showed back up on Lillian's doorstep and I'm alone in the home and I'm frightened out of my mind that she's going to forcibly take me back to Denver and I'm home alone. And there she is. And I called, you know, Lillian and said, my gosh, my mom is here. And I'm shaking and, you know, trembling out of just a lot of the adrenaline out of that fear, you know, fight or flight mode kicked in and, and I didn't know what to do. So Lillian and Mark showed up very quickly um, because they only, you know, where they were was about 10 minutes away. And they just told me not to open the door for her. And so I stayed in the house quiet, just praying that she wouldn't force her way through the house because I didn't know what was going to happen. So Mark and Lillian get there and, you know, my mom tries to get me to um, talk me into going back to Denver with her. And... You know, I was compl- I was a compliant child. I don't know how I had the wherewithal to run away from home in the first place, and two, to withstand that um, her just pleading with me to come back with her. But I did, and I just kept kind of sticking to the I want to stay here in Houston. I want to live with Mark and Lillian. I want to stay here. Um, this the thing that I didn't know at the time when she was, you know asking me to come back with her is that my older sister, Marilyn, who also was living with Mark and Lillian at the time, um, they tried to, before they came to look for me, right before that, they tried to forcibly get her in the vehicle and they tried to force her back. And she was a little more feisty and a little more fire in her belly and, you know, fought them off and said, no, I'm not going back. And so by the time they came looking for me, they had decided that probably wasn't a great idea to try to forcibly do it. And they tried to talk me into it, but I didn't want to go.
0: So it sounds like you stayed with them for a long time. Did they legally adopt you?
1: No, I just I lived with them and um, they enrolled me in school and explained I was enrolled in a private school. And so they just explained the circumstances. And, you know, they allowed me to go to school. And, um, one of the things that I'm grateful for is when I was in the school and the teachers learned about my story and learned about my father, um, I had been going by my mother's, a different name, by my mother's married name before she married my father spiritually. Um, but when I was in that school and they learned about my, My real father, my real name, with my father's last name is LeBaron. The teachers there offered to change my record that I had been enrolled with and give me my real last name because that's what was on my birth certificate even. And so my birth certificate was from Mexico. They gave me my real last name, and so I became a LeBaron after that and have, you know, and continued through life with that, you know, last name until I got married and that I appreciated that, that they were able to make those changes and be willing to do that for me. And it gave me a sense of identity that even though it's not a great last name when your father's herbal, you know, (laughs) um, it, it helped me a lot psychologically to have my real name be my name. And so you know, kind of brings you out of hiding, so to speak. I mean, there were other times when we were enrolled in school under fictitious names. And so having my real last name be my last name was, was a moment for me. And then to continue on with that was important.
0: Were you able to adjust well? I adjusted as well as anybody could
1: under the circumstances. I... I probably needed psychological counseling and, you know, professional help. Um, I went through a period of depression, which was never diagnosed. But looking back when you are constantly sleepy and wanting to find a place to lay down and sleep as a 13, 14, 15 year old, I, I can imagine that anybody looking back on that, on my behaviors and actions would See some symptoms of depression, but I had made this huge life change and left behind siblings and my mother and everybody. So it makes sense that that during that transition and that change that I would experience some psychological difficulty and trauma.
0: Yeah. So no, that I mean, I would I would be surprised if you didn't, to be quite frank. So yeah. Um. So. So that was a difficult adjustment period and it took, you know, a,
1: a while to transition and and kind of become my bubbly outgoing self again.
0: Talk to us about how you got to where you are now. Well, I um
1: I eventually graduated from high school and um and then went to went to college and instead of getting my degree, I say I got my MRS degree because I married, I got married (laughs) instead of finishing my degree. And I started a family and, you know, started my family because my husband at the time was in the military. So we got shipped overseas and, well, he was shipped overseas to Japan and to Okinawa, Japan. So I joined him on on an unaccompanied tour there and we lived off base and started our family there in Okinawa. Our first son was born there. And then when we moved left there, we were stationed in Amarillo and had four more children in Amarillo, just one after another. <laughs> so, I had a family of five children born to me pretty quickly. I wanted eight, but stopped at five <laughs> when I realized I was way outnumbered and and had a lot of lot of little ones that all of them needed Help with a lot of stuff during the day, and so um, it was during that period of time that some events occurred that I talked to a friend about, and a friend um, made me an appointment with a professional, with a count, with a lay ministry counselor from her church, and then that you know when I went to that appointment, she um, she referred me very wisely to a professional counselor, and, and that began what I call my healing journey, and that was 1995. It took a lot of years for me to unpack the trauma and to talk about all the abuses that occurred and all the emotion that had been suppressed for so long finally had an outlet.
0: Do you find yourself religious today?
1: Yes, I um, today I consider myself to be a student of the historical man, Jesus. Um, I want my life to be characterized by, you know, the ideals of love and joy and peace and kindness. And and that's what I feel like um, he exhibited, you know, when he was on the earth. So um, so that's kind of what I strive for and and hope, because a lot of people, most people will agree that, you know, with more love, joy, peace, and kindness in the world, the world would be a better place.
0: Do you find yourself identifying with any of your Mormon roots? Well, I, acknowledging
1: that I have them is easy to do, because I can trace them right back to Benjamin F. Johnson, who was I guess a very close confidant, closely affiliated with Smith. And so my roots go all the way back. And it was when I read uh, John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven, Mm -hmm. which I was not prepared for the emotional upheaval that that would produce in my life when I read that book, because I was expecting to read about another family. And I knew he had written about our family history. There's like a chapter or so in there about the LeBarons, and so I expected that because I knew that was going to be in there. What I wasn't expecting and what I wasn't prepared for emotionally was the way he very um, carefully and studiously and judiciously makes the case and brings that entire history of, you know, starting with Joseph Smith all the way to modern day present at the time. And because I had, you know, spent so much of my life after I ran away from home and, you know, distancing myself from my past, from my family of origin, reading that book kind of pulled all of that that I had really carefully set aside and tucked into a little box and put away. You know, it just brought it all to the forefront and pulled it to modern day present time. And that was very psychologically disturbing. And I was not prepared for that when I read the book. But it ended up being serving me in some really important ways as I went through my healing journey, where I was able to reconnect to my family of origin in ways that were healthy and and then prepare myself because I eventually did reconnect physically with them Where psychologically reconnecting with all that was, was was disturbing when I physically reconnected with my family of origin. I talk about that in the book too, and those were very frightening times as well. And so, you know, there was just so little about my life that wasn't emotionally difficult and psychologically disturbing sometimes. And then, you know, there was so much trauma from all the people that died and the people that we lost that, you know, over and over again, it just happened so much and so often that it was just traumatizing. And so, you know, in my healing journey, I talk about um, the ways in which I have been able to identify um the anxiety that I experienced, the post-traumatic stress and find helpful and healing ways of, of managing all that and, and navigating through that and coming out on the other side.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love your resiliency. I love how you've overcome this stuff. Um, and I'm really excited to have people buy the book and I, I actually full disclosure, haven't read the book, but I've ordered the book, so it's coming. um, (laughs) And we're going to post, like I said, links to the articles you've done, but talk to us what else you're up to. You have a book signing coming up in Salt Lake, right?
1: Yes. Um, Barnes & Noble is hosting a book signing in um, Salt Lake City at the Sugar House location. Um, It's April 29th, 2017, and it's going to be from 4 to 6 p.m. Thank you. (laughs) So... Uh, four to six p.m. right there in Salt Lake City. And I'm excited about coming because I live in Dallas now, but I'm going to be doing a book tour. And so I'll be excited to get there and to, to share that and to meet people. Cause I love meeting people. I'm very outgoing and, and sharing my story in this way that, um, is showing, gives a lot of hope and, demonstrates the restoration that's happened in my life and in my family's life and the reconnection that my family has had and all those ways that, that some of these events that have occurred in the past have been redeemed and in ways in which my life has been restored to me. And just the person that, that I was born to be is now who I can be. And so that's, um, that's the message, is there's just hope and and then healing is available, you know, for anybody that's experienced trauma and abuse.
0: Well yeah, and I really appreciate that. And hopefully we'll have you come to Sunstone the summer too, so you can talk more about your book there. But would be fun. Yeah. Um we'll introduce you to lots of other people who have left groups, all different kinds of groups. I mean, it's it's kind of a strange family reunion for for people to connect like that. Um so yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything else you want to let us know about you or the book?
1: I mean, that's I. I hope that your listeners will, you know, pick up a copy and and read it and and then you know, message and find me on social media and you know, let me know what your thoughts are about it. I mean, I'm pretty forthright with my experiences and the way I tell it, and so I would love feedback and to know what your what your listeners think about it because your listeners are very educated about my family, my family history and, and the, and the LDS history.
0: I know we need like a hashtag for the listeners, like polyg nerds or something. I'm not quite sure what it is. What's the, like quite right fit? <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> we're our polyg junkies. I don't know. Someone out there, give us a good hashtag, put it in the mm-hmm. comment section. We need, we need a good one.
1: And so I would, I would so love, for your listeners to connect with me on social media, you know, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. I'm, I'm on all those and I'm active on those. So um, I love getting the feedback.
0: So. Okay. And you can send me those links and I'll link to them at yourpodemy.com. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Anna. Thanks for coming on and telling your story. Well, I appreciate you having me, Lindsay. Thank you so much. Support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.